Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So on this show, of course, we love to do the hot takes. We, we do talk about the topics of the day. Sometimes you got to get into the nitty gritty and what is going on in the country. But we also like to take the long view. We like to zoom out a little bit and go for a deep dive on things that are a little more eternal, some things that are evergreen, principles, political theory that's going to matter over the long term and not just be about whatever Trump indictments coming down the turnpike or whatever Joe and Joe Biden scandal happens to be popping up in the news. And so today I wanted to go ahead and get into the works of Joseph DeMaestre with you guys. But before we do that, let me introduce you to my friend and co-host here today, The Prudentialist. Thank you, sir, for coming back on. Thanks for having me on, Oren. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So the uh, the work of Joseph Denestra is something that I think is really important. It's somebody who is often breezed over a lot of times when we talk about political theory. He's not somebody I ever heard of when I was studying political you know, theory in college, which was a shame because he does great work. He's somebody who uh, it was uh, writing in kind of the shadow of the Enlightenment. He's right after uh, the, the revolution in France. He, he's writing in that period. He's writing very often in response to Rousseau, which we'll see in, in the material that we're getting to here. And, and he really is a counter-enlightenment thinker. He is what it would, many people would call the original reactionary. You know, him and Thomas Carlyle are often cited as some of the original reactionaries. One reason that uh, people often don't get into Joseph de Maistre is that so much of his work was kind of updated and secularized by people like Carl Schmitt. Carl Schmitt's very effective, uh, very to the point. So it's often easier to just cite him. But I think Demeester's work going worth going back to, both because I think he does get into things that are very important that Schmitt does not cover. And also as Christians, as believers, he does bring a theological bent. You know, he 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 does not strip out the theological content behind many of his arguments. And I think that's really important because today, even many Christians feel like the only arguments they can ever make are secular. The only reasoning they can ever present is a completely secular argument. And Demaestre comes from a period where Christian arguments are assumed to be completely rational, completely fundamental, uh, completely within in the intellectual tradition. And so he makes no, you know, he's not hesitating when he brings those arguments to the table. He makes no apologies for kind of the way that he approaches those issues. And so that's why I find much of his uh, uh, philosophy refreshing because he's bringing a perspective that we don't normally see. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to understand that Carl Schmidt cites so much of Joseph Demeester's work in the concept of the political, as well as in sections of the crisis of parliamentary democracy. Like without Demeester, you don't get some of the best sort of Schmidt bangers that are out there. And uh, you know, we talk about, you know, Schmidt, or we talk about some of the more modern reactionary thinkers, but there was a time, like you said, where it was, it was Christianity first in your argumentation. And so if you want to know where people like Carlyle or where Schmidt got some of their ideas from, you need to go to De Maestro, you need to go to Sir Robert Filmer and Patriarcha, these more Christian and theologically oriented defense of, you know, kingship, the divine right of kings and the Christian ideal of monarchy and sovereignty. And it's a great time that we get to discuss this today. Absolutely. I've spoken on his, on his uh, uh, work on the constitution pretty often, but I haven't gotten into this work, but I think it is very important. It's not very long. So people want to read it for themselves. 
it's it's not a whole book it's a it's a long essay you know so but it's not uh, impossible to get through so if it's something that you want to explore on your own that is available to you but i want to work through here it, it is longer than we're going to be able to get through today but you know i've worked through these uh works with with people like alexander dugan and nick land and so many people enjoyed those series i wanted to go ahead and do a series with demaster here and so this is going to be the first episode of what i'm sure will be multiple uh different episodes going over this kind of long essay and breaking it apart. Now, just a little bit of background. Joseph de Maistre is somebody who, while he had a lot of tri ties to France, and this is why he's so often referencing France, he actually was always a subject of the uh, kingdom of uh, Piedmont and Sardinia. Uh, he worked, uh, he was a member of the Senate there, I believe. And then he was a Russian ambassador and then he was an officer at court. And so he, he was constantly involved in government there. That is something that uh, he was always a part of alongside with his writings. But that's why he eventually ends up writing things like the St. Petersburg uh, dialogues, because he's he kind of had those experiences over time. Uh, so just just to put a little context in there. He's writing in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, you know, the American Revolution is still relatively young. They're not sure how this whole thing's going to shake out. The French Revolution's a disaster. And so that, that's kind of the context for people that he's, he's writing in when he's talking about this. Uh, but that said, let's go ahead and read a little bit of study on sovereignty. And we'll just stop and kind of fill in, react on some of these as we continue. All right. So chapter one, sovereignty of the people. It said that the people are sovereign, but over whom? Over themselves, apparently, the people are thus subject. There is surely something equivocal, if not erroneous here, for the people which command are not the people which obey. It is enough, then, to put the general proposition, the people are sovereign, to feel that it needs an exegesis. So he's going to go here and just go directly to basically like a fundamental principle of the Enlightenment, right? That, that the popular sovereignty... Sovereignty is coming from the people. It's the collectivity of the people who are going to kind of rule over things. And he immediately says there's a logical contradiction here. Again, something that for many Americans is going to is going to be a little jarring. But he says, look, how can you be the ruled and the rulers simultaneously? That doesn't make any sense. So we need to break this down further if we're going to understand what is trying to be said here. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where we're going to begin to see that Christian uh, theology get placed into here is, is that, you know, if someone is to be sovereign, then this must come from something that's divinely ordained. And you're going to see a lot of that Robert Filmer Patriarcha Institute there, and both in this essay, but through the following chapters, that really the first king is is the father, is is the family man, the one that rules over the family. And um, if you, you know, give the rights and sovereignty to other people, you've you've abdicated your own ability to rule. And I think, again, that's something for a lot of people to kind of grasp here, because so many times words like sovereignty just sit around and, and they don't they're not tied to anything that they, they're not really explained. We just kind of throw them out there, but we don't actually link them to the practice of this kind of thing. And that's what uh, Demaestra is most certainly going to lay out here. This exegesis will not be long in coming, at least in the French system. The people, it will be said, exercise their sovereignty by means of their representatives. This begins to make sense. The people are sovereign, which cannot exercise sovereignty. So to clarify for people who aren't really familiar, the sovereignty means having complete power. It's having complete power, complete authority over something. So if the people are sovereign, but they then 
de uh, delegate that to someone else and they can never themselves exercise it. Then he's saying, okay, so these people are sovereign, but they never actually get to exercise any sovereignty. They're supposed to have this total control, but the first thing you do when you ask people what how the sovereignty actually looks is, oh, well, actually they pass this total control to someone else. And those are the people who exercise it. And if you're not exercising sovereignty, then you're not sovereign. That, that That's kind of the most basic understanding of this. It, it seems kind of obvious, but it's something that we pretty much obscure routinely in the American system. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's sort of interesting when you think about some of the zanier sides of American politics. I mean, there's the whole sovereign citizens thing where they just reject all laws, all totality of the Constitution, the federal government, etc., that they're sovereign over themselves, which is sort of this embodiment of that enlightenment ideal that Rousseau talks about, that the people are sovereign, that they can rule over themselves and be an orderly people. And De Maistre's like, no, sovereignty is about power. It's about who has the authority to make other people obey. And so, you know, for the sovereign citizen types, uh, there would, you know, De Maistre would call them barbarians. They, they aren't ruled <laughs> right. by anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there has been much heated discussion on whether sovereignty comes from God or from men. But I do not know if anyone has noticed that both propositions can be true. It's certainly true in an inferior and crude sense that sovereignty is based on human consent. For if any people decided suddenly not to obey, sovereignty would disappear. It's impossible to imagine the establishment of sovereignty without imagining a people with con uh, which consents to obey. If then the opponents of the divine origin of sovereignty want to claim only this, they are right, that it would be uh, quite useless to dispute it, since God has not thought it appropriate to use supernatural agents in the establishment of states. It is certain that all developments have come from about about uh, through human agencies. But saying that sovereignty does not derive from God because He has made use of men to establishment is like saying that the that He is not the creator of men because we all have fathers and a mother. So He's saying here. You know, there, there's this argument, you know, is, is does the power of a king, does the power of a sovereign come from God or is it something that's completely derived from man? Right. Is it something that's completely a social creation? And his answer is both. He says it's, it's pretty obvious at first that there has to be some level of human you know, source for this because we're not just ruled over by supernatural agents. Right? You know, this isn't the Garden of Eden, Eden, where we just have a direct relationship with a divine ruler or even kind of a, a you know children of israel situation where the where the nation and the hebrew nation is being guided by like the pillar of fire you know that this in smoke right like that we don't have that one-to-one -one connection and so because of that uh there there is always going to be some truth to the fact that humans have instituted uh you know th this institution but simply because humans have been used to create this institution does not mean that god is not involved in its creation yeah, absolutely. Let's carry on. Let's see here. Every theist would no doubt agree that whoever breaks the laws sets his face against the divine will and renders himself guilty before God, although he's breaking only human ordinances. For it is God who has made man sociable, and since he has willed society, he has willed also the sovereignty and laws without which there would be no society. Thus laws come from God in the sense that he wills that there should be laws, and that they should be obeyed. Yet these laws come also from men in, uh, in that they are made by men. In the same way, sovereignty comes from God, since he is the author of all things except evil, 
and and is in particular the author of society which would not exist without sovereignty however this same sovereignty comes also from men in a certain sense that it is uh, that is to say insofar as particular forms of government are established and declared by human consent the per- the partisans of divine authority cannot therefore deny that humans will pl- uh, that uh, that the human will play some part in the establishment of governments and their uh, opponents cannot in their turn deny that God is preeminently the author of these same governments. It appears then that the, that the two propositions, sovereignty comes from God and sovereignty comes from men, are not absolutely contradictory any more than the other two, laws come from God and laws come from men. So he's saying it's basically an argument of the natural order here, right? We We see that routinely societies emerge in this way that God has ordered humans to live in this way. And because he routinely orders humans to live in this way, there is a certain duty to obey a sovereign who is over these, that you are required to obey these laws and that to, to simply uh, oppose them just because you want to oppose the sovereign there can, well, you know, we'll, we'll get there. There will be justifiable reason to oppose laws here. He's not just saying, that uh, there, there's never any reason to oppose a law, but in general, the, that the laws, uh, if justly you know established, should be obeyed, due to this being set under an authority by God. And of course, this is just straight out of the Bible. This is just straight out of the New Testament. So this shouldn't be anything crazy here. But he says, of course, that's gonna that's gonna change because there isn't one type of authority set by God. There isn't one type of government. So the different Governments will be reflective of different peoples, different traditions, but still that doesn't mean that God was not involved in their creation. Yeah, he makes it very clear to almost as if the same question that you hear a lot in discussions over the argumentation for God that a created thing implies a creator. And he outlines that clearly here and the Catholic reactionary tradition that he's kind of coming from in this instance that, you know, yeah, men have created things, but men are also created by a higher power and that the laws that we have are accretions or additions to, to the laws of the Lord. Um, it's kind of interesting to see him make this claim that there are, are laws that come from God and laws that come from men, because in the English tradition in, in, in Patriarcha, Robert Filmer is very much saying, well, there's a really big difference. There are commands from God, which we cannot break. And if we do, we face you know punishment, whereas there are laws um, by men that we can, you know, follow and obey. And, but they're, they're, they are different. Whereas here, you know, he's equating them to be rather similar or non-contradictory. It's a, it's an interesting difference of opinion. And to be clear, as we go through this, uh, this is not just a hundred percent of endorsement that everything, uh, that, that, uh, that Demaster says is correct. But the main point of this is to explore a, 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 a body of political theory that I think is very valuable has a re- still has a lot of relevance today and most importantly brings us in contact with a tradition that is so often forgotten by people is so people are so often not aware of and another way of thought if you don't read any books before you know that were written before 1900 guys you're you're just losing out on on understanding the world in a way that is just critical all right so uh the second chapter here he, again these chapters are extremely short they're like a page you know usually or two at most so uh, we, we'll be able to get through a couple of them today. Uh, but chapter two here, Origin of Society. It is one of man's curious idiosyncrasies to create difficulties for the pleasure of resolving them. The mysteries that surround him on all sides are not sufficient for him. He still rejects clear ideas and reduces everything to a problem 
by some inexplicable twist of pride, which he make which make uh which makes him regarded as below him to believe what everyone else believes. Man, uh, it's just old school dunking on midwit midwits right here, right? Just <laughs> like ah, uh, you're just constructing a bunch of jargon so that you can sound smart. This is really easy. You should just be listening to Grug. He's on one end of the bell curve. Uh, you know, the, the genius is on the other bell in the bell curve. You sitting there with your pronouncements, your complicated jargon, you're, you're sitting in the middle looking like an idiot. Uh, so, for example, uh, there have long been disputes on the origin of society and uh, and in places of quite simple solutions that naturally present themselves to the mind. All sorts of metaf metaphysical theories have been put forward to support airy hypotheses rejected by common sense and experience. If the causes of origins of society are posed as a problem, it is obviously assumed that there was a human era before society, but this is precisely what needs to be proved. Doubtless, it will not be denied that the earth is a, is a whole intended for man's inhabitation uh, or habitation. Now, as the multiplication of man is part of the creator's intent, it follows that the nature of man is to be united in great societies over the whole surface of the globe. For the nature of being is to exist as the creator has willed it. And this will, uh, will is made perfectly plain in those facts. The isolated man, therefore, by no is no means the man of nature. When a handful of men are scattered across vast territories, humanity was not uh, what it has become. At that time, there are only families, and these scattered families, either individually or by their subsequent union, were nothing but embryonic peoples. So right here, he's going directly at, again, what is a very common enlightenment construct of uh, the state of nature, right? It's this idea that uh, there before civilizations, every man was for himself and, you know, the, by himself isolated. Everyone's an isolated, atomized individual. And only after we've you know, entered into these social contracts or whatever, can we actually then begin the work of society says no that's garbage like that's not how any of this works people were made for society <laughs> we live in a society you know like like waiting for that meme to drop yeah yeah we people were made to live um you know in, in continuous contact with each other social organizations are a natural emergent part of the of kind of the natural order and so the idea that we can create this this artificial abstract uh you know state of nature and then plan of all of our philosophy or order all of our society and the construction of our constitutions and governments starting from this makes no sense. That has, there's no actual reflection of reality. Yeah. And he's going to go into it in these next couple of paragraphs to uh, highlight that the uh, man in a state of nature that we should base our societies upon this is absolutely ridiculous that we have no to, to base ourselves as if we were perfect, enlightened, rational beings that could effectively govern over ourselves and manage just fine without, you know, the authority of a king or a singular uh, sovereign, it, it's not going to happen. We, and he says it quite clearly as embryonic peoples. We were mm -hmm. infants. We were not anything that was developed. You can't base your idea of how human society should operate as everyone was out for themselves. We can do just fine in order because if anyone looks to the past or even looks to the stories of antiquity in the Bible or in other, you know, non-Christian texts that no, actually, you know, man before Kings and society and authority was uh, rather brutal and short and bloody. It's very interesting too, that this, this kind of uh, failure 
this this artificial construct with which you want to explain society that air only compounds itself later on in liberalism we see it at the beginning here in the state of nature but this only gets worse because i don't know how many of you are familiar but john rawls is basically like the new touchstone for liberalism he's the he's the updated touchstone for liberalism and john rawls has this idea of the original position where basically you just assume that everybody exists behind this veil of ignorance and nobody knows what's going to happen in society and nobody knows where they're going to be and from that we can just kind of construct the perfect equal society you know assuming that that we don't know anything about ourselves and that is just a just a compoundment of the error that demaster is identifying early on in the enlightenment he's saying this is already a problem right and so we're going to see this uh this metastasize and become uh, even more abstract and more ridiculous the truth is people are grounded in tradition people are grounded in these connections the only way we perceive the world is through this great chain of being we are a part of and to try to cut ourselves away from that to assume that we existed in some kind of proto-civilization from which we can then construct these ideas or these institutions is a is a fallacy and there there, there is no human who exists in this way and trying to create this completely deracinated human this completely cut off human who who then will logically just build these things up from the bottom and agree to all this stuff that is that is a failure from the start so he's identifying a error that will continue deep into the liberal tradition as alive well uh is live and well today uh in in uh current philosophy and so long after the formation of the great societies some small desert tribe still shows us the spectacle of humanity in its infancy there are still infant nations that are not yet what they are to become. What would, uh, what would one think of a, a naturalist who said that man is an animal 30 to 45 inches high without strength of, uh, or intelligence and giving voice only in articulate cries? Yet this naturalist in sketching man's physical and moral nature in terms of an infant's characteristic would be no more ridiculous than the philosopher who seeks the political nature of the same being in the rudimentary society. Every question about the nature of man must be resolved by his history. Excuse me. The philosopher who wants to show us a, a priori reasoning what man must be does not deserve an audience. He is substituting expediency for experience and his own decisions for the creator's will. That's such a critical paragraph there guys that's that's so important so he makes the point that that uh that prudentialist was alluding to there right that yeah we can look at these tribes we can look at these nomadic tribes or these uncontacted you know, peoples and we can see some aspect of human development right we yes that that is a proto uh you know society in some ways but he says if you were if you want to define humanity only by uh, that then you're if you're looking at society demanding uh, or defining it only by that then that's like defining what a human is by only looking at a child and that makes no sense you to to explain what a human being is you must look at the entirety of the human experience you must look at how it looks at every level of its development and then explain it in its totality and when you do this with societies when you try to explain societies as only this this infant thing that then we can play with or meddle with or draw lines around, then you remove it from its history, its connections, its traditions, its identifying uh, features. And he gets down here and he says, 
you know, if you have a philosopher who wants to just a priority, a priori, you know, before everything, just come out and say, this is how, you know, we, we should be creating that. He's just smuggling in his own preference. He's just bringing in his own emotions, his own preferences, his own biases. And he's saying, I want these things to exist instead of looking at the natural emergent properties that come from the creator's will, what God actually placed into society, what he's made emergent and consistent across societies. I want to replace that with my own preferences. And so I'm going to smuggle them in by saying they're part of some infant, you know, that, that they can be determined at some infancy in society rather than looking at the totality of the thing. Yeah. Demetrius dunking on new atheists 200 years <laughs> before Dawkins wrote anything. Take that neck beard. It's it's coming. <laughs> he's coming for you from from two hundred years away. Yep. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, every question about the nature of man must be resolved by history. The philosopher who wants to show us uh, by or sorry, sorry, picked up a little late there. Let me assume that someone manages. Let me assume that someone manages to prove that an American savage. Sorry, guys. It's written in yeah. It's written in the early eighteen hundreds. What do you want from me? is happier and less vicious uh, than a civilized man. Could it be concluded from this that the latter is a is a degraded being, or if you like, further from nature than the former? Not at all. This is just like saying that the nature of the individual man is to remain a child because at the age he is free from vices and misfortunes that will beset him in his maturity. His uh, History continually shows us men joined together in more or less numerous societies ruled by different sovereignties. Once they have uh, multiplied beyond a certain point, they cannot exist in another fashion. So he's just, again, dunking directly on Rousseau here. He's like, take that noble savage, savage myth, right? He's like, look, you can look at people living in a less complicated way, in, a, in, a, in an earlier version of civilization. But that again does that that does not make them closer to nature or closer to actual the, the emergence of human nature because they're not dealing with the complexity and the modes of being that will arise once people have multiplied, once you reach a certain level of societal complexity. He says again, you have to look at this in its totality. You have to say, once people move from one way of being to another because they've reached a certain level of complexity, they've reached a certain level of civilization it's very unlikely that they're going to go back. They're not just going to fall back into these rhythms that existed uh, before that, which to be fair is something that we as reactionary people sometimes should probably think about people who are often labeled reactionary that you, that you will just fall back into patterns of life or rhythms of life that existed for before a certain level of social complexity. He says you, you can't just turn, you can't just return back to, you know, this, this prior level of, uh, social organization and so when you look at these things you again cannot evaluate uh the way a society should be just from its lowest level its earliest level of organization that is not in itself reflective of human nature yeah i mean john michael greer points out in retrotopia like you can't force a, a technological regression and unless like bear, bearing an apocalypse you know force majeure the second coming happens you're not going to see a reversion to lower standards of social complexity. I mean, that's why we have that whole apocalyptic fiction genre, because we're curious how that would happen. How do we regress back? But in reality, that doesn't happen. 
And so to sort of base our society of the you know concept of the noble savage or that individuals from less developed societies can somehow fit right in in more developed ones, you know, as they claim with immigration so often, that it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. You can't, you know, rapidly force someone to become more complex in the same way you can't rapidly force people to assume that they're not going to be any different than how they were, say, before the invention of the internal combustion engine. Yeah. And obviously, societies collapse, guys. Like, obviously, we all know that, you know, Roman Empire collapses and, and people lose, you know, especially in the, in the West, lose a lot of technology, those kind of things. We're not saying that society can't regress. But what he's saying is that there will be a certain type of life that if you have a certain level of complexity, you can't maintain that level of complexity and still go back to that life. The two things can't coexist. Like, yes, like civilization could fall. People can live in the ruins. You know, people people can Mad Max it at some point. But even if you Mad Max it, there's still a car, right? Like you're still hunting for gas to fill the engine. So, yeah, like, you know, you yes, in some ways, society has obviously regressed. But many of those changes to what humanity knows or does or will do remain permanent. Some of that technological aspect will be uh, in, you know, an indelible, leave its indelible mark on humanity. And that, that's kind of what we're getting at there. Thus, properly speaking, there has never been a time previous to society for man. Because before the formation of political societies, man was not a complete man. And because it was ridiculous to seek the characteristics of any being, whatever, in the embryo of that being. Thus, society is not the work of man, but the immediate result of the will of the creator, who has willed, the man, uh, who has willed that man should be what he has always and everywhere been. Rousseau and all the thinkers of his stamp imagine or try to imagine a people in the state of nature. This is their expression, deliberating formally on the advantages and disadvantages of the social state and finally deciding to pass from one to the other. But there is not a grain of common sense in this. What were these men like before they were uh, before the National Convention in which they finally decided to find themselves a sovereign? Apparently, they lived without laws and government but for how long? So, uh, or I'll just read one more bit here. Uh, it's a basic mistake to represent the social state as an optional state based on human consent, on, on deliberation, and on original contact, uh, something which is an impossibility. To talk of a state of nature in the opposition to the, uh, the social state is to talk nonsense voluntarily. The word nature is one of those general terms which, like all abstract terms, are open to abuse. In its most extensive sense, the word really signifies only the totality of all the laws, power, uh, uh, all the laws, power, and springs of action that make up the world, and the particular nature of wit of of such, and such a being in the totality of all the qualities which make it what is, and without which it would be some other thing, it could no longer fulfill the intentions of its creator. Thus, the combination of all the parts which make up a machine intend to tell the time, uh, tell, intended to tell the time forms the nature or the essence of the watch. And the nature or essence of the balance wheel is to have such and such a form, dimensions, and position. Otherwise, it would be no longer be able to balance, uh, to be a balance wheel and could not fulfill its functions. The nature of a viper is to crawl, to have scaly skin hollow and movable things which exude poison venom. And the nature of man is to be a cognitive, religious, and sociable animal. 
all the experiences, all the experience teaches us this. And to my knowledge, nothing has contradicted this experience. If someone wants to prove that the nature of the viper is to have wings and a voice and a sweet voice, that of a beaver is to live alone on the top of the highest mountain. It is up to him to prove it. In the meantime, we will believe what is what must be and what has always been. So again, he's attacking this idea that you can just uh, find some initial state of nature, some starting point, And from that starting point, you can then say, all right, guys, we're drawing up all the rules. We're creating all the laws. Everyone's going to sign this contract and we're all going to consent to it. And we're going to like enter into this social contract and uh, we'll, we'll have all created it voluntarily uh, kind of from from nothing. He says, no, you are already plugged in to a way of life when governments come to be right. When those governments emerge, you are already living in a tradition. You already have an idea of how life should be. You're already religious. You're already associate. You're already uh, uh, you've already been in the society. And those governments come to reflect those things, not the other way around. You don't design the society with the government and then it just falls in line because you wrote it down on a piece of paper. Instead, you exist as a human, just like all animals exist in, in their own way. And your, uh, your existence as a human in, includes the fact that you can think, that you are religious, that you are social in parts of families and communities. And that will then be re uh, reflected in the kind of government that emerges when you formalize it down the road. Yeah, notice how he's using the he he points out very easily the contradiction of the state of nature with those that are, you know, wanting to advance the national convention, these uh rights of man, sort of the the constitutionalism that we also have here in America is that you aren't liberating yourselves from anything. If anything, you're trying to liberate yourselves from human nature, which is to, you know, be ruled over, to be sociable, to be religious, and to participate in the complex society that you are in. Trying to liberate yourself or force a kind of uh, proto-apocalypse from, say, getting out of monarchy into democracy where every person's a sovereign, all that you are trying to do is to divorce yourself from the very nature that man is. You are divorcing yourself from the very state of nature that Rousseau and other Enlightenment liberals up to John Rawls, you know, of the more contemporary fame think so. And if anything, as he points out, it's up to you to prove it. And uh, history has, I think, illustrated that it has not worked out so well. Yeah, that shifting of the burden of proof there saying like, look, this is obviously the emergent order. This is obviously where. So if you're going to bring some other idea, you got to prove that this is what man is supposed to be. You can't just come in here and say, well, I hit the reset button, state of nature, you know, uh, veil of ignorance, you know, original position. Like, no, you, you can't just create these philosophical constructs to reset humanity. The nature and the history of peoples is what's going to determine their their social order unless you have some other way to prove otherwise. So that that's that's what he's going to go with. The social order, Rousseau says, is a sacred right, which is the basis of all others. Yet this right does not come from nature. It is therefore uh, found on, founded on convention. What is nature? What is right? And how is an order a right? But let us leave these difficult difficulties. Such questions are endless with a man who misuses every term and defines none. Uh, I like, again, you know, dunking on Rousseau here. It reminds me of uh, of our friend uh, David Distributus and his uh, his magical words, right? Th yeah. This is kind of the original attack on magical words, uh, full full of emotion, 
uh, and full of political energy, but devoid of any actual rational content. Uh, one has the right, at least, to ask him to prove the big assertion that the social order does not come from nature. I must, he says himself, establish that I have what I have just advanced. This is indeed what should be done, but the way in which he goes about it is truly curious. He spends three chapters by uh, pro uh, in providing or improving that the social order does not derive from family, society, or from the force, or from slavery, chapters two, three, and four, and concludes chapter five that we must always go back to a first convention. This method of proof is very useful. It, it lacked only the majestic formula of uh, geometers, which must be proved. It is also curious that Rousseau has not uh, even tried to prove that one thing that is uh, that was necessary to, or the one thing that is necessary to prove, for it is the uh, the social order derives from nature. There is no social compact. Before examining, he says, the act by which a people choose a king, it would be as well uh, be as well to examine the act by which uh, a people is a people. For this act being necessary previous to the others is the true foundation of society. This same Rousseau, so also elsewhere, it is, he is again quoting here, it is the inner, uh, uh, it is the intervent habit of, of philosophers to deny uh, what is and to explain what is not. Let, let us on our side add that it is the inner, uh, intervent habit of Rousseau to mock the philosopher without suspecting that he is also a philosopher in all the forces he gave to the word. So, for example, the social contract denies from the beginning to end the nature of man, which is in order to explain the social compact, which does not exist. This is how uh, this is how one reasons when one separates man from divinity. Rather than tiring oneself out in the search for air, it would take little effort to turn one's eye to the source of all creation. But so simple, but so simple, sure, and consoling a method of philosophizing is not to the taste of writers of this unhappy age whose true illness and his aversion to good sense. So he's just saying here, basically, basically, if he wants to derive this idea, if he wants to create this uh, idea of the social contract, he basically just has to completely divorce himself from nature and divinity. And by doing so, he basically just opens himself up to all of these criticisms that he's throwing at other people. Uh, really just, again, going going at uh, Rousseau on a regular basis, you'll see plenty of this throughout De Maestra. Yeah, and I think it's really important to highlight this section here. Not only is he sort of just casually bashing Rousseau as just a, the philosophers of the age that don't understand where these things come from, in this instance, uh, divine you know creation or what is divinely ordained. Rousseau is making the claim that he's outlining here, that society and our sort of state of nature when we look at how man is as an animal not just sort of this higher being or this sort of um not not being among the dumb beast as it says in scripture um that man you know we we can just come together and we can find ourselves and form consensus that first convention as he's sort of been advocating for a more democratic a, a less sort of monarchic sense of order and that this is the way in which man can become a social creature Whereas for, you know, De Maestra here, he's outlining a very important thing that even if you took out the creation, the creator aspect of this, you know, as a social animal that we are born as, that we are going to be, even when we were, you know, barbaric, you know, without just roaming tribes and so on, 
man was an aggressive animal. It established order and hierarchy on its own, on a basis of strength, on a basis of power. And those things, of course, lead to rulers, kings, sovereigns, those who rule over those that can order the others. Um, for Demaistre and for any Christian, this is kind of divinely ordained. Like, you know, this is where he and Sir Robert Filmer talk about this all the time, that like God has ordained kingship. God has ordained a ruler over, you know, an, an ordained patriarchy, hence the Filmer's work being called Patriarcha. And so to say that like that doesn't exist in nature, you know, is not only false, but it just philosophizes about what are we and what are we not and no actual definitions provided. Whereas De Maestro is simply going back to scripture, common sense and the entire history of mankind to recognize that no we are built this way and our creator has built us this way and all that rousseau is advocating for is to divorce us from the very nature he says we're actually based on so he's sort of just poking one hole by you know one hole after another that this concept of you know the state of nature of man requiring consent requiring a populist vote requiring conventions um is not true at all uh, throughout the history of man and the history of the christian religion and really interestingly, you know, this touches on something that I believe you and I have streamed on before, which is that disagreement creates the opportunity to rule, right? So he's saying, look, if you're a, a person who looks at the world around you, if you just look at the order that is emergent, things that we have known from our traditions, from our Christian traditions, from just the observable world around us, then you already understand that this is kind of part of what society is. And the, because there's no debate there, then there's there's no opportunity for this guy to kind of generate energy. But if these people can come in and they can they can say, well, what if that wasn't the case, right? Like, what if we can we can cut these ties to divinity? What if we can uh, cut these eye, the ties to the idea of a natural order? What if what if we can tie this to something else, or you know, so, something that is free this or or abstract? Then we can remake the rules ourselves, right? We we can create this disagreement. We can generate this ability. And it's, so it's it's just this beginning, you know, of, of deconstruction. It's this beginning of leftism as deconstruction coming in, tearing apart what was already understood, already known. Demetrius says, look, this is already simple. Like you're making this way more complicated than it needs to be just so you can, you know, create the world that you want to create in opposition to the divine order, which is, again, just the most fundamentally human thing uh, that one can do. Uh might is not uh, might it not be said that man, this property of divinity, was cast on this birth by a blind cause, and that he could be either this way, this or that, and that it is a consequence of his choice that he is what he is. Surely God intended some sort of end in creating man. The question can thus be reduced to whether man has become a political animal, as Aristotle put it, through or against the divine will. Although this question stated explicitly is a real sign of folly, is never the, uh, nevertheless uh, put a, indirectly in a host of writings, and fairly often the authors even decide that the latter is the case. The word nature has been given uh, has given rise to a multitude of errors. Let me repeat that uh, the nature of any being is the sum of the qualities attributed to it by the Creator. With immeasurable profundity, Burke said that art is man's nature. This is beyond doubt. Man, with all his affections, all his knowledge, and all of his art, is the true, uh, is the true natural man. And the weaver's cloth is a, as natural as spider's web. Man's natural state is therefore to be what he is today and what he has always been. 
That is to say, sociable. All human records attest to this truth. So he's entering in and he's introducing the Aristotelian idea of telos, right? Man has an end. He, he exists for a reason. There's a purpose for him, and that is his right way to exist. And also that man is a political animal. And so that his interactions with people, his positions in society, his duties, his responsibilities, his privileges therein are all tied into what man should be. He, he is not sitting alone somewhere as an independent rational being determining all the things that society will be, how it will be laid out, how human nature will proceed from there. No, instead, he's created with a purpose, he's created, uh, set inside these social circles, and those will draw him naturally towards where he should be. And if you're trying to separate him from that, if you're trying to separate and you're, you're trying to say, oh, no, it's, it's only natural man outside of society, pre-society, you know, the state of nature, that's the only way we can only understand that. No, the, the human is traveling through, societies are traveling through, and that these things that society creates these complex things, uh, you know, he uses the the uh, illustration of the weaver's cloth here. They are just as natural as a spider's web because what man makes, his art, his his creations in society, that is part of his nature as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to to claim that you know we're not social political animals, and somehow the fact that we are is against God's will, as Demeister argues here, is the the very folly that Rousseau and other Enlightenment liberals think that it is. All right, guys, um, I was going to try to squeeze in chapter three here, but I, I don't know if we're going to have time. We say, well, no, chapter three is really short. We'll do that. Yeah, we can talk the last one. <laughs> I was thinking that one was another two pages. All right. So we'll we'll get this one done real quick and then we'll go to the super chats. All right. So uh, chapter three, sovereignty in general. If sovereignty is not an uh, is not anterior to the people, at least these two ideas are colla uh, collateral since a sovereign is necessary to make a people. It is as impossible to imagine a human society, a people without a sovereign as a hive and bees without a queen. For by virtue of the eternal laws of nature, a swarm of bees exists in this way, or it does not exist at all. Society and sovereignty are thus born together. It is impossible to separate these two ideas. Imagine an isolated man. There is no question of laws or government since he is not a whole man and society does not exist. Put this man in contact with his fellow man. Uh, from this moment, uh, you suppose a, a sovereign. The first man was a king over his children. Every isolated family has governed in this uh, in the same way. Uh, was governed in the same way. But once these families join, a sovereignty was needed, and his sovereign and the sovereign made a people for them by giving them laws. Since society only exists through the sovereign. Everyone knows the famous line, the first king was a, uh, was a fortunate soldier. This is perhaps one of the falsest claims that has ever been made. Quite the opposite could be said. The first soldier was paid by a king. There was a people, some sort of civilization, and a sovereign as soon as men came into contact. The, world, the word people is a relative term that has no meaning divorced from the idea of, a, of sovereignty. For the idea of a people involves that of an aggregation around a common center. And without so uh, sovereignty, there could be no political unity or cohesion. So this is short, but there's a lot packed in here that I think is really important. And I think it also interestingly uh, answers 
some things that are debated often in the online right. Uh, so, so some some causalities here. So the first thing, thing he lays out here is the idea that a people would not exist without a sovereign. And this is, again, the opposite of what we usually think about, especially in the American tradition, right? The people elevate a ruler. The, the people choose the ruler. So the people pre-exist and then the you know the, and the ruler is, is then kind of uh, selected from them. He's saying that these things that the, even if the ruler does not pre-exist society, it has to exist simultaneously. That the, these things have to have to be created simultaneously. Because what would a people be? How would they even operate without something leading them? How how would any social coordination ever emerge if there wasn't a leader? And he brings in this idea that you know even even a fa- even a family in isolation the father serves as the first sovereign, right? He's, he's the organizer of the original uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, political body, which is the smallest one, the, the unit of the family. And then once those come together, once multiple families come together and they form a clan or a tribe or, or you know, a, a city state, that's going, you're then going to get that sovereign emerging off of the kind of that natural hierarchy. Yeah, this is really, it's short, but this is probably one of the most important sections here to say that there has always been at the root of all things with society, a sovereign, whether it be the father or whether it be a collection here. And this is where you also get the notion of a people, a nation state, a, um, you know, a a collection of what we might call the Germans or, or the French and so on and so forth is it comes from people coming together and acknowledging that they submit to a sovereign authority. And without that sovereign authority, peoples do not exist. And the more fractionalized or tribal you break it down, um, you know, they still have sovereigns then, which are are the fathers, which are family units and so on and so forth. Uh, The first king was a fortunate soldier. He points out that that's false because even then the the first king is the father. And if we wanted to go with peoples, you could say the first peoples were ruled by a fortunate father, the one to be either, you know, consented to be the king or the one by the force of the sword to do so. Um, You know, civilization has always been around, um, you know, and the first form of civilization has always been family. So I, so I think that's interesting because a debate that arises pretty ob- on uh, pretty often with many people kind of in the online right or the dissident right spheres is this debate between whether it's the it's the throne or the altar, right? The sword or the altar that kind of creates uh you know a civilization. Oftentimes, you have people like uh, like Dave the Distributist who says, you know, no, you need to have you know, the, the, the theological, you need to have the religion, you need to have the authority of the king before you get civilization. And then you get people more on maybe like the academic agent side or the, the, the BAP sphere who say, no, it's the war band that is the, the, the beginning of society. It's not until the, the war band, you know, can, can cut society out of a piece of wilderness and fight off everybody else and conquer that society can emerge. And interestingly here, you know, you kind of bring about that. Well, no, even, even, you know, those, those, that war band has to come from somewhere, right? That they have to, at the very least, it emerged from families and the, in those families, there were proto Kings. There were, there was a patriarchy that preexisted this. And so uh, the idea that, uh, you know, again, the focus will be like, oh, well, do you, do you need, uh, you know, rough and ready men or do you need fathers? You know, is it, is it, is it, the, should people focus on, on being lone warriors or should they focus on being family, good upstanding Christian family man? And the answer is those things aren't really separable 
in in many ways, right? Like you, the, these things are both critical to civilization, and they are far more intertwined than we try to make them when we try to focus on one particular aspect or the or other about what um, creates society, what what lets it emerge. Yeah, absolutely. I think that they're they're not the the whole sort of Corios war band go settle and conquer the wastelands or the barbarians is not a mutually exclusive thing from you need fathers, you need a society, you need families. Because even in those sort of, and I'm sure someone in the comments or chat will, will call me out in case I do get it wrong. But I, like I said, I'm not an anthropologist. But, you know, even those war bands, they came from, you know, they were excess men. They were men that couldn't either find wives there or, you know, there were just, there are, the rest were taken. And, but they were given commands, you know, either to go out or to set on their own thing and to become those side sort of sovereigns over new territory to find wives, to find women and do so even in that sort of what might be con constituted as a barbarian sense, there's still sovereignty. They recognize that there's nothing here for us. You know, we know that there is sacred tradition. We can go out, conquer and explore and become Kings ourselves. And I mean, they're, they are sons that wish to become fathers. They are sons that wish to conquer and rule over that first King just becomes the, the, the son of a father who, or even a prince that wishes to become king in the form of fatherhood or to conquer and to lay waste to somewhere else. I, at the same time, those guys end up becoming fathers, raising, you know, sons that will most likely do the same if they don't find a, a wife within that society. You need to have people that can do both. I mean, this is, there's sort of this tweet that says, if you ever feel like there's your life is without purpose, it says that, you know, oh, it, meant, it was meant that you were meant to die in a war somewhere. And I think that that's sort of crass, but I think that there's this semblance that, not everyone is to be wed. Not everyone is going to have children, but other people can establish sovereignty through you. We are meant to be subjects to somewhere else. And that sort of thinking that Demeister is getting at here is the really uncomfortable notion that you get from a lot of liberals and a lot of John Rawlsian egalitarian types because it supposes hierarchy. And more importantly, and it's where it gets really uncomfortable for liberals, is that hierarchy is natural and it has always been around with us and the more and more we try to divorce ourselves from hierarchy, uh, the more and more you get anarcho-tyranny, the more and more you get the idea that certain people who just commit more crimes are somehow magical, and this is the way it's always been, and that's a good thing. And it doesn't recognize that maybe there is hierarchy, that you actually need law and order, you need a sort of warrior you know, cast of people to enforce that order and to acknowledge some sort of uh, sovereign, whether that be a king or, of course, you know, the divine will. And I know we're not going to get into it, but for Joseph de Maistre, the idea that that divine will and the king were separate, not true at all. They've always been intertwined throughout antiquity. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to stop here for today, but we most will most certainly continue this series. Uh, this will, this just gives you kind of the basics of what sovereignty, where does it come from, you know, the, the origins, those things. But we will definitely dive deeper into this as we continue working our way through this essay. But we do have limited time, so we'll stop with the third chapter today let's go over to our super chats real quick uh, real quick uh creeper weirdo for two dollars anti-enlightenment with Oren and the frogman yep it's, here we are doing our best uh let's see tex-mex here for two dollars love my king love my god simple as uh the classics so uh, let's see uh tex-mex here again is he's always here with the carlism yeah uh, Texmex here for ten dollars. Uh, Carlism has an understanding of the concrete man of tradition versus the abstract man of modernity. 
Carlism also has a notion of historical and traditional continuity, which have uh, they have some PDFs on these topics. Yes, uh, like I said, I know you're connected to uh, some some descent of that uh, movement, but I am unfamiliar with its current mo- modern incarnation, but certainly interesting to know more. Uh, Ronald McNuggets here for $10. Uh, Schmidt's sovereign is uh, dormant in regular times, but rises when normalcy verges on exception. The more established an order, the less sovereign authority intervenes in normal times. Yes, uh, this is, of course, true. I mean, in, in many ways, uh, Schmidt is focused on constitutional order. And so he's talking about the times in which uh, the exception would arise to that con- constitutional order. If you don't have things that are you know, driving you to those moments, uh, then, then things can continue to operate inside the bounds of the prescribed constitution. Though for Schmidt, those things pop up far more often than kind of the modern person usually thinks. Yeah, and this is why De Meister doesn't talk about it, but in the later chapters, this is why he's so emphatic on religion, because the more established in order, the less likely the king has to intervene. Well, for De Meister, what helps establish the sovereign, you know, not not the sovereign, but what helps establish that social order, and the more it's normalized, is a highly religious and virtuous people. And that's the same sort of thing that John Adams and Benjamin Franklin talked about at the beginning of the American Republic, that this can only be kept by religious and virtuous people. And the more that you, you know, veer away from divinity, the more that you veer away from God, the more likely you are to be prideful, virtuous, philosophizing, the things that, you know, Demeister has been sort of dunking Rousseau on with. That's what creates this disorder, and Schmidt highlights that that's a problem, especially in parliamentary democracy. It also happens here in America, which causes the sovereign to emerge during those you know, states of emergency or states of exception. And this is why you can't read Schmidt without reading De Maestra. And, and this is something that I also got in trouble for explaining, you know, when I was explaining the state of exception, you know, people took issue. They're like, oh, you know, I said, oh, well, of course, this, you know, the, the sovereign can and will uh, you know, violate rights in the state of exception. And people are like, well, no, of course they can't. They're rights. They're natural rights. I, I said rights really loud. And so you can't violate them. And I'm like, <laughs> guys, if you don't have a tradition that avoids the exception whenever ever possible, and even when the exception is invoke, invoked, still binds the sovereign by, by the shared values of that tradition that exists deeply in society, then that's when these things break down. So like right now, our government is constantly ruling in a state of exception because all of our traditions have broken down. All of our all of our shared values have broken down. And so the government constantly violates them because why wouldn't it? It can. And so it will. The only thing that binds the government is not like because I wrote natural rights down on a piece of paper. or I have enough, you know, uh, uh, enough separation of powers or branches of government. That's enough rules and regulations exist to, to you know. To, to make a neutral you know, bureaucracy, that is not what controls government power. What controls government power is a tradition and a distributed authority amongst the people and other social institutions that bind the actions of the government because there's simply no way that the people will continue to grant their consent to people who are constantly ruling in a state of exception that violates those traditions. That is what binds sovereignty not your ability to scream, but my second amendment. Okay. And so when we talk about this stuff, it's really critical to understand that it is that religious tradition. It is that moral tradition, that cultural tradition. That is what's going to limit the excesses of a sovereign invoking the state of exception. Not you, not you quoting different chunks of the constitution. 
Absolutely. Uh, Creeper Weirdo again here for $2. Uh, that reminds me, when are you guys going to talk about AI art? Uh, you know, I feel like I've touched on it a few times, uh, but obviously uh, uh, Prudentialist and Geo would be the, the, the best pair for that. They've got uh, their podcast together, the uh, Gulag Archipelago. I'm, I'm sure Geo has many thoughts on uh, on AI art. So if, if you're looking for that opinion, that's probably the place. Yeah, maybe maybe Geo and I will talk about it. We're, we're live every Thursday at 2.15 p.m. Eastern. So maybe we'll touch on it soon. There you go. See, we can spin those super chats into shill opportunities. Don't worry, we got this down. All right. Uh, uh, Glow in the dark here for $10. Genghis Khan, the peak of power by the sword, still believe the heavens blessed him to conquer. The Romans sought out a god's favor. Sword and priest exist together like a person has a heart and a brain. Yeah, I, I agree with that totally, man. Uh, it's so, and and to be fair, all right, so here's here's the trap. Here's the trap of Machiavellian political analysis along with every other bit of modernity is the desire to, if we can just close one eye, right? If we can just close our eye and focus on one thing and we can maximize that thing, then we will understand it. We can examine it. We can manipulate it and we can extract all the value from it. And that works, right? Like there's a reason that the enlightenment has, has worked to in many ways because it has allowed us to say there's only the material or there's only this and there's only that. And therefore we can just focus on that and that will produce the best result. But when you do that, there is a cost. And when you separate the wholeness of human being, human experience from its different aspects, you will, there, you will always pay a cost. You may get a benefit, but the cost will come due. And so I think it's really tempting for some of us to say, oh, well, it's just the religion. It's just the culture. It's just the people. It's just the military aspect. It's just the sword. But it's never just any of those. It's all of those things in their totality that create a political reality, create society. And when you try to divorce any part of this, like you're saying, glow in the dark, you're always going to get a very serious error. Yeah, this is why throughout the history, like he mentions in the Super Chat, I mean, even if you read the Iliad or the Odyssey and everything that comes of these great, you know, uh, Greek tragedies and epics, that there has always been seeking the favor of the divine. And without that, you know, then they're most likely doomed to fail or they've fallen out of favor for their deeds, um, both in Christian and pre-Christian traditions. And even today, when people say that, like, the wokeness is a religion, those people are seeking some aspect of the divine, although in material and earthly things, which is foolish and suicidal, um, they're far more, you know, suicidal and millenarian than any sort of Christian or anything like that, in the sense that these people are elevating these egalitarian aspects as a religion. They're, they're elevating, you know, groups of people that hate their guts to be their gods, to have mercy on them. When the history of all of those sort of, you know, ethnic conflicts always lead to someone getting, you know, killed, usually en masse. And we see this all the time, whether it's in the radio, we see this now where, you know, the whole Dianne Feinstein thing is a really good example of this, is that that seat was open for election. There was hoping that, you know, Schiff would somehow win the... The, the primary and be the, you know, easy democratic shoe in to go for it. And well, she passed away. And what happens with Gavin Newsom? He's asked the question, sort of the religion of the day, like, are you going to have a black woman on in the Senate? And so someone who doesn't even live in the state of California is appointed to do so because this sort of divine favor of, 
you know, political progressivism in America demands that you have to do this to curry favor with their religion. And if not, you're out of power. And we see this all the time. And even today in the most, you know, inverted, divorced from Christianity, divorced from any true semblance of the divine, they still have to imitate it because it's the actual natural state of man that De Meister has talked about in these chapters and in the rest of his study on sovereignty. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And then I, I echoed something similar in my last piece last week, just, just the reason I think, and I, and this is not, uh, you know, people, I, I wrote this, people are said, Oh, you think the woke is going away? It's like, no, 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 you misunderstand the, 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 the you know, the, I'm not saying that the woke is some easily discarded political theory that will just be, or political, you know, convenience that will be swept into the broom closet the minute that it, it performs poorly. It, it is a critical part of the construct of what we're facing. It, it is, it is the religion. It is the soul as Prudentius is saying, it, it is a necessary form, no matter how perverted it is still uh, critical to the political theology of the day. And you cannot discard it for that reason. However, as Prudentius pointed out, it is a funhouse mirror, right? It is an inversion of the natural order. It is brittle and ugly, and it will break because it has to, because it is not under the divine order. And, it, and anything fighting against that eventually will lose. And so I do think that that, you know, eventually falls apart, not because the woke is being put away, but because true believers will push it to its breaking point. And because it's not the true and the good and, and, and the beautiful, it will eventually fall because it cannot sustain the human soul. It can't sustain a high society in perpetuity. Yep. All right. Uh, David uh, Tavares here, I believe that is uh, Euros. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, why, uh, why positions like this one are not mainstream today? Thank you for your work. Well, thank you, man. We appreciate it. I mean, I think they're, they're not mainstream again for, for the reasons that uh, both credentials and I have kind of put out here because uh, those in power today do not want people to connect to this tradition. They do not want people to understand these truths about society. Their maintenance of power relies on that. And let's be honest, I mean, a lot of the opposition, quote unquote, is really invested in their own version of that kind of completely divorced, you know, completely unconnected to tradition uh, notion of humanity and how you can order society. They're just looking at the last version of that. And so uh, unfortunately, even those that oppose it are often uh, reaching for completely hollow ideas and not some of the stuff that's more deeply rooted, which is the tradition that Demaestra is in contact with. Yeah. And what Demaestra is highlighting with Rousseau and what you see with all sort of iterations from sort of egalitarian liberalism is a resentment towards the natural order a resentment towards the fact that man has always been a sort of patriarchal, the first king is father. Um, even you see this with Roman tradition, you know, pater, you know, um, familia, you know, that uh, fatherly fidelity to the, the father and families and then kings and traditions. And that resentment today has been mainly brought on by a divorce from religion, as we've talked about earlier today with the, the sovereign, you know, being more active 
because we're not a religious or virtuous people. You know, the, the same ha problem happens when we saw it with the, you know, the Russian Revolution. There were those that wished to upend and to, you know, end Christianity as sort of the sovereign rule. This is why the Bolsheviks killed some 37,000 members of clergy and monastics. You see this in America where we've divorced ourselves so far from God. We're no longer allowed to pray in schools without getting sued or even invoke his name when we wish to pray before a public meeting. And in doing so, there's no order that we can recognize that's higher than ourselves. And we lose track of those traditions. And in doing so, it's every man for himself. And we want to kill each other if someone wants to have a different opinion than we do. And De Maestra, much like other reactionary writers, is a Cassandra figure. He's a Cassandra prototype in a lot of ways. That here are these predictions of what is to come true, but no one will listen to me. And we now live in the uh, fruits of what these egalitarians and progressives and liberals have sown. Well said, well said. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up there. But like I said, we will surely come back to this essay and continue. <coughs> Sorry there. Uh, we'll surely come back to this essay and finish uh, or probably not finish next time for sure. But uh, but continue to work our way through the thought of Joseph Demaestra. Thank you, everybody, so much for coming by. Uh, Prudentialist, I know you shilled a little bit, but is there anything else that people should be looking for is there an article coming out a piece coming out a video anything people should be checking out before we go well absolutely as always Oren, thank you for coming on you can find me on youtube as the prudentialist i'm on twitter at mr prudentialist uh i'm also on substack as well but um the biggest thing that i'm currently working on right now and it should hopefully be out later this week is going to be a look at how migration, immigration, and demographics are used by nation states as a weapon of war so be sure to find me at the prudentialist.substack.com Excellent. And also, guys, I've got some good news. Uh, the, the book, The Total State, is at the publisher. It's going through its first stage of editing right now. We got a, a preliminary cover and everything. I'll give you some more details uh, when when I know we should have a should be going to print uh, probably probably in January here. But but there's there's quite a bit of lag time, so I can't give any hard dates at the moment. I, I just say that because I've had a, a number of people recently asking popping in saying hey where, where's that book i heard about the book when's it coming i i, I miss you know, i didn't get to read some of that and i want to catch up with it so let you know that is still coming don't worry it's it's in the pipeline it's just uh you know it takes a little bit to turn those things around but uh, i will let you guys know as soon as i have more information on the total state when you can do pre-orders and that kind of thing that said of course if it's your first time on the channel please go ahead and subscribe and if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts please make sure that you subscribe to the Orm McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do leave a rating or review, it really helps with the algorithm. All right, guys, thank you once again for coming by. Thanks to the Prudentialist. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.